Our battered suitcases were piled on the sidewalk again. We had longer ways to go, but no matter. The road is life. Jack Kerouac on the road. We all carry suitcases filled with the flotsam and jetsam of our experiences. These satchels are that which is us. And we open them and share them in order to connect. Every road is an adventure. Every path a journey. Most are mundane and normal. Some are quite peculiar. I'm Don Hall, and these are my peculiar journeys. It happened my junior year in high school at a stadium concert in Western Samoa. The conversion had been a long time coming. I was a bit of an intentional outcast among the more popular kids in my where-the-fuck-are-we Kansas high school and being a typical teenager despite my ingrained belief that I was fully non-conforming and different than this cast of Heartland rednecks, finding inroads to the cool crowd was definitely still on my mind. Crystal Good, the name was changed because I'm not a complete dick. She was the captain of the cheerleading squad and the president of the school's chapter of the FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Turned out one did not need to be an athlete, but you had to be a Christian, or at least be open to the relentless witnessing and Bible studies. Thing is, I wanted to fuck Crystal. She was untouchable, but hung out with that FCA crowd. At one point, I randomly asked her how to join. Her reaction was effusive. Oh, Don, I'm so happy you're asking. You would be such a powerful witness for Christ. And she held my hand for a moment that in my head was instantly underscored by some awful Christopher Cross song. I was hooked. Remarkably, as I started attending, I mostly listened and kept my built-in skepticism at bay. I wasn't there to antagonize the believers, I was there to get a finger into Crystal's cheerleading panties. Once I understood the language and the right things to say, I went in for the facade. I was a true believer in getting laid through profession of non-existent faith. Meetings were almost always the same. Crystal would lead an opening prayer that was designed to remind us all of our supplication to the Lord, followed by what really could only be called vapid confessionals. Each of us had to relate a couple of sins we committed during the week and how we repented for them. I cheated on my algebra test. I felt real guilty, so I went out of my way to be nice to insert one of the three black kids in school. I lied to my mom about being at practice because I was playing Dig Dug at the Circle K. I promised God that I would be honest next time. I felt really angry at Mr. Telfer and wanted to kill him. I guess I didn't kill him, so that's okay, right? At which point, once we had all told our stone-skipping sins, we rarely got into drug-taking, drinking, or sex, because, hey, that's personal between me and Jesus, man. It all devolved into a standard high school gossip session, complete with Mountain Dew, taco-flavored Doritos, and fudge brownies that one of the girls made in home ec. Despite my efforts to cozy up to Crystal, it was never to be. She really was untouchable. On the other hand, my newfound faith became an entry point to many lesser-desired vaginas, so it wasn't a total waste. Close to the end of my junior year, I was encouraged to audition for a touring mission group called the Continental Singers. Effectively a proselytizing show choir with a six-piece band, the bonus was summer travel. That summer, the group was going to Fiji, Tonga, New Zealand, and the Samoan Islands. Plus, we got paid a stipend and had free housing and food. 
I put on my best on fire for the Lord attitude, answered all the questions right, played a few bars on my trumpet, and I was in. What I didn't realize was that I was now going to spend my entire every waking hour for three months with true believers, a few of them spectacularly hot young women. This was going to be a challenge to keep up the pretense and not expose myself for the poser I had become. Early into the summer, my rooming partner Steve started to catch on. When my guard was done, I didn't seem that Christian in his opinion. Sure, I had all the right answers, but got quickly bored with too much dogma and talk of the Bible. Word spread and, and, and the doctrination, indoctrination became kind of a bit heavy handed. All right, the show that we performed went like this. The band would play an overture. Then the show was an originally written version of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, but with different music and some really, like, really terrible dialogue. It turned out that a lot of it was verbatim from the Word of God. So I'm assuming God can write a bestseller, but not a musical. Following the show, about 45 minutes in length, our director would come up and do a come to Jesus, won't you, sermon, followed by an opportunity for anyone in the audience to receive the call, embrace the love of Christ, and publicly commit themselves to God. The last part was always eloquent and a bit relentless. You know in your heart that you are a sinner in need of redemption. Man is born in sin and must accept the saving grace of our Lord. Jesus died to fulfill the law of the Old Testament. Confess your sin and it will be washed clean. How about a couple of bucks once you've joined? Okay, the last line was a bit more implied than stated, but the last section of the night was a prayer and offering plates passed around by the cast while the band played inspiring tunes adagio. People came up in droves to publicly admit they were permanently stained with sin and received the acceptance of the rest of the herd. We were mostly free during the day and we'd go out in teams to recruit audience members for that night. The teams shifted around and almost every day I was gently nudged toward the idea that while I was a Christian, wink, wink, it was a beautiful experience to reaffirm my faith publicly. Every day for 45 days or so, this message was pounded into my soft adolescent brain and often by these stellar looking women of Christ. The Kool-Aid was looking mighty tasty and I began to question whether my resistance to the whole thing was just merely my sinful ways fighting back. It was as if they'd heard my objections a thousand times and didn't need me to say them out loud to pitch their liturgical woo. Mind you, this was long before smartphones and I was thousands of miles from home. I felt isolated, but only because I simply couldn't intellectually buy into the party line. I missed American food, my car, my friends, television, movies, and books written by living authors without the agenda to convert me to religion. I missed masturbating and saying, fuck. I missed being myself. One night at a show in Western Samoa in August, as the director was making his emotional pitch, when he asked if there was anyone who wanted to commit themselves to Christ, he looked directly at me. Three or four of the cast members followed his gaze and looked at me with smiles that said, we understand, take the leap, we approve. And I drank the Kool-Aid, all of it, in one weepy gulp. I was dubbed born again, and I believed it as firmly as I had previously disbelieved. 
From that point, I was in the freaking club. Knowing that soon we'd all be back in various states around the country, the talk was that our friends wouldn't understand, but it was our responsibility to show them. I was told that anyone we couldn't get to see the power of Christ was a poison that we should cut out of our lives. Friends, family, anyone. Either with us or against us with no wiggle room on it. When I came home, I'd heard that pitch so many goddamn times, it was like a script filled with buzzwords and catchphrases that I could recite with gusto. Well, some five years later, the magic wore off. While my mom is the kind of Christian who truly tries to judge no one and feed the poor, too many I encountered were not. She and the people I've met through her are the kind of true believers you read about and by whom you should be inspired. That's not me being partial to my mom. She actually started a food bank in a closet of a church that has now grown to serve four counties in rural Kansas. Most were either wearing their Jesus bowling shirts each week or worse, the kind of Christians who tear gas a group of people, peaceful protesters so they can walk across the street to pose with a Bible and then make a campaign video about it. You know the pussy-grabbing kind of Christians. What happened during those five years are stories for a different time, but the result of this conversion and the later coming to my senses is this. I know cult think when I hear it. When it rears its head, I've been there. Faith is a very personal thing, like watching a Marvel movie or reading the 1619 Project in the New York Times. It requires a certain suspension of disbelief. It can be a salve in the human experience as we are creatures born to existential crisis. Turns out, we need something to hang on to beyond our own survival to thrive as a species. It can also be used as a bludgeon for power and cultural control, and has often in history been exactly that. I understand how easy it is seeking the approval of others to agree to a guilt that isn't yours to bear out of a sense of belonging of confessing sins you don't feel at all responsible for, but do anyway because that Kool-Aid is delicious, ain't it? The reward of feeling like you are accepted by the crowd, that you are indeed a voice for the word of, you know, whomever, is selling the most potent elixir is comforting. One of the hallmarks of a cult is that it tries to cut you off personally from anyone who sees the world differently than they do. When you see people urging others to completely cut off their friends and families over an issue, it's a cult. Anyone selling you the idea that you were born in sin based entirely upon inclusion in your race, gender, sexual preferences, pitching a cult mindset, any concept that creates a circular maze of proof. If you admit you're a sinner, you're a sinner. If you deny you're a sinner, you're a fragile sinner, is offering you an ice cold glass of Kool-Aid. And please remember that there are like, you know, 50 different flavors of Kool-Aid, but they're all just sugary water with food coloring. And welcome to Peculiar Journey 78. Um, we have, in fact, um, as you know, we opened the uh, casino. And uh, it's been an interesting experience in the post-COVID world. Um, we've discovered that... Uh, a lot of our, our guests do not wear masks, and we all do wear our masks. I'm, I'm actually getting very used to wearing the mask. It's, it's funny because, uh, you know, as much as I dislike wearing them, because nobody can say, while it's necessary and while it's a responsible thing to do, that it's fun. It's really not fun. It's kind of a pain in the ass. However, one of the things I noticed when I was uh, on a Friday, I was very busy. A lot of things were going on, and I actually took my mask off in the soft count room and then had to leave real quick because I had something to do. And I realized I was walking around the casino without a mask. 
And it was really weird. It was like a, it was suddenly like my cock was just flying around. You know, I was really conscious of it. So I grabbed another mask and then I ended up getting my mask. But it's very, very interesting how we do become accustomed to those sorts of things. Now, one of the things that I've, I'm encountering is that because station casinos did pay all of us for the entirety of the, the lockdown, the shutdown, um, a lot of our uh, promotions at the uh, the casino have been taken away. And one of my... One of my regulars uh, came in and was kind of pissing and moaning because we don't offer the free chairman cigarettes anymore. And he can't get discounts on his room right now. And he can't get free Denny's. You know, right now, that's kind of where we're at. It's like that kind of thing. And he was, you know, that's a great way to bring people back into the casinos. Take away all the perks. And I looked, I said, well, Ruben, I said, that's, I mean, that's an interesting, that's an interesting framework that you, you put on that. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, it's an interesting frame of of how you see not getting any perks. And he goes, well, you get a better one? I said, well, I don't know if it's a better one. And I said, but the frame that I'm looking at is that for the last two and a half months, there are three casinos in Las Vegas that continue to pay to have their employees employed, you know, that they, they didn't have to worry about unemployment. They could just continue receiving checks with the hope that they would get a, that their job would still be there at the end of all this mess. And that's when um, the Venetian and Palazzo and, you know, Sands and uh, Station Casinos. And what I would say is, yes, you are, you, you are not getting a free pack of cigarettes today because of your playing. But I would say that you're having to buy that pack of cigarettes. And Krista was the bartender sitting across. And I know he, he's rather fond of Krista. I said, you buying your pack of cigarettes just guarantees that Krista still has a job. And he stopped and he looked at his cigarettes and he looked at his drink and he looked at Krista. And he said, all right, that's a good frame. And that's kind of how we're looking at things. It's been a slow process. People are starting to figure out that things aren't going to go back to exactly normal. Um, and, uh, so we keep, you know, we just keep on figuring out how that's going to go. Business has been about, it's about 60% less than what we expected or, 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 or we're used to. And, um, but otherwise it kind of feels strangely normal. Um, like I said, some people wear the masks, most don't, um, we're seeing spikes across the country at this point, but, uh. Yeah, it's really interesting, the concept of, of creating a, a, a narrative frame. How we perceive uh, the world around us really has a lot to do with how we, the lens on which we kind of place things. And I think societally, our narrative frame is uh, in a transition phase. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It's called a narrative frame. For over 200 years, the narrative frame of America has been that of men imbued with a sense of manifest destiny, visionaries tired of British subjugation who, borrowing from everything from the British to the ancient Greeks, forged a system of governance for all men to realize their full potential. Narrative frames tend to leave out a lot of pertinent information. Simple and clean frames tend to last longer. The frame exists to promote the foundation of control, of maintaining the fragile status quo, or to foment a change from the previous frame. The attempt to reframe a long-held narrative is difficult. The easiest part is to break down the inconsistencies within the current frame. These founding fathers intentionally prohibited women 
from having a voice. They were slaveholders, so their vision that all men are created equal was bullshit. The frame long held is a hypocrisy. All right. Once the old frame has been shredded, rebuilding a new one is where the hard work comes in. We've just spent energy debunking a narrative handed down for generations, but without a replacement that can inspire forward momentum, one that foments a hope for the future, the replacement fails. Full disclosure, I don't participate in protests. This is not because I don't believe in many of the causes or, or do not fully support the idea of protest as a valid form of political expression. I just don't participate because they often feel like bad theater with no point. Perhaps I'm too pragmatic with political stuff these days, but end racism and abolish the police are really solid plans on which to hang a protest designed for change. The country simply isn't going to abolish their police forces any more than we just get rid of the military. And given that every human being since the beginning of recorded history uses race to create tribal divisions, racism is in our DNA. We might as well have a worldwide protest against thumbs or penises. Oh, wait, they've had the protest against penises. Lots of gauzy concepts like acknowledging your privilege without the inevitable follow-up that after you acknowledge it, you have to be willing to give it up. In this case, privilege is power and control. And that's like demanding Jeff Bezos just feel so shitty about himself that he hands his almost trillion dollars to poor people and resigns himself to a minimum wage job in a post office. Sounds good. Simply never gonna happen. Now, while rewriting the narrative frame needs to be simple and easy to digest by eighth graders, it needs to be feasible and there's no and, and, and there is no room for hope. It, it needs to have room for hope. It, it also needs to be free of too much inaccuracy for or, or like the founding fathers myths can be taken apart just as quickly. Beginning with the brutal beating of Rodney King in 1992, the cracks of the national narrative were seen and heard. It wasn't the sight of four white police officers cracking a skull of a black man that signaled the fracture. It was that we saw it, raw footage, and the legal system in place refused to punish the true criminals. It was the verdict that set the tinder ablaze. The quick follow-up was the acquittal of O.J. Simpson. Again, we saw it play out in real time in our televisions, almost as if the justice system was trying to take back the injustice of King's lynch mob in blue, we watched a black man who committed a vicious double murder walk free. Quid pro quo. Then, like dominoes falling one after the other in real time and with companion film, we saw Michael Brown killed and Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, a dozen more. Those rewriting the narrative took to academia, took to framing the country's story with the murders by police at the fore. This was not about the systems failing or about the nuts and bolts of true citizen oversight with the various police forces. This wasn't about culture or class or poverty. This was about race. Now, while race is certainly an ingredient, the stew is comprised of far more. It is about race. It's also about culture and the tribal need for, to either assimilate or separate. It's about class, injustice, and a hard-baked human requirement to find others to push back against to feel forward momentum. But we aren't prepared for complexity. We need simplicity in the narrative. So like the early authors of Christianity needed to convince the crowd of their need for God, bigotry became the original sin of America. Unlike the concept of Christian original sin, this sin has no savior whose sacrifice washes us clean of it. The narrative insists that if you're white, you're guilty and in perpetuity. 
It isn't enough to avoid your biases and racist practice. You have to be anti-racist, and even then, you're never free from the debt. It's a solid narrative frame. We worked for religion for thousands of years. Like I said, I'm more pragmatic as I get older. The plan to end racism is passion-inducing, but not actually possible. Every person born finds a way to prejudge others based on tribalism. I, I don't march in protest because no matter my intent, if I speak out, I'm taking up the room for black voices. If I'm silent, I'm complicit. And if I ask what organizers think I should do, I'm asking for their emotional labor. Like I said, solid frame. It's like a maze from which there is never an exit. Maybe a little bit like being black in America. My protest sign wouldn't make for a good chant or be funny enough for a Twitter moment. Given the circumstances of police killing approximately 1,500 people last year, mostly white, but a vastly unequal proportion of the black community, the pragmatic solution is just not to abolish the police, fuck the police, kill the police, or fire all the racist police. My sign would say, for George Floyd, proper training for police, citizen oversight with real authority, Accountability guaranteed by special prosecutors who do not work with the accused. Yeah, I know. It's not very sexy. And that's the thing about change. Rewriting, rewriting the narrative frame is a challenge, but genuine, on-the-ground, measurable progress is really quite dull and slow. It's a methodical thing and requires a lot of data collection. The goal isn't eliminating racism, because that's a fantasy of Tolkien proportions. The goal is to create systems that prevent racists and terrified thugs and angry politicians from benefiting from their worst efforts. The goal is to make it nearly impossible for a brutal cop to ever be put on the street, and if one manages to squeeze through, holds him or her accountable for the crimes he or she commits while on the job of keeping the peace. I hope these historic protests give us a new narrative frame. I mean, I really do. I hope instead of laced with rage and hurt, it is scented with optimism and inclusion. I have nothing but respect for the grand dreamers and every black person out on the streets of cities across the globe are grand and they're courageous and they're inspiring. But I also hope that once the narrative is shifted, the people who can focus on legislative change, scientific scientific methods of de-escalation training, experts on how to apply the law justly and effectively for every citizen to get to work doing the slow, methodical stuff. It isn't a grand dream, but even a pragmatic dream is worth the effort. And that is Peculiar Journey 78. Thanks for listening. We hope uh, if you're digging it, share it with a few people. I'm no longer uh, on Facebook or Twitter, so uh, I have a, a more limited uh, ability to spread the word. So if you listen to this, if you enjoy it, do me a favor, do me a solid, put it on your social media because you haven't bit the bullet yet and said this is worthless and, and unnecessary and not enjoyable. Um, but I appreciate it if you would spread the word a little bit for me. And if you don't enjoy it, then don't listen again. For that in mind, you're going to take Take, take it easy. Take this week. Uh, do nice things for yourself. Um, wear your freaking mask. Uh, keep apprised of the news. Um, be supportive. Be kind to each other. And I'll talk to you next week.
This has been another episode of the Peculiar Journeys podcast. For archived episodes, go to donhall.vegas slash podcast to hear stories of Chicago, of Millennium Park, and of the big move to Las Vegas. If you dig the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts and review the show. If you really dig the podcast, why not go to patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys and help fund the endeavor. Whatever you decide to do, thank you for listening, and I hope you come back for more of my peculiar journeys.